A Thoughtful Faith podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. We are your hosts. I'm Mark Rigo. And I'm Gina Colvin. Our purpose at A Thoughtful Faith is to provide support for Mormons who want to stay engaged with their religion, yet are struggling to find conversations that support their faith transitions. While we seek to honor the beauty of the LDS faith, we also understand that discipleship doesn't necessarily mean uniformity and agreement. Hence, we make room here for all of those who are constructing or reconstructing a thoughtful faith journey. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go toward keeping the podcasts alive and building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. When John DeLuna first approached me about hosting A Thoughtful Faith Podcast, my immediate thought was that I'd like to interview my former bishop, Peter Kamek, and his wife, Liz Crombie. Mormonism has the potential to bring people together to have powerful and profound conversations, and any time Peter and Liz and Nathan and I have broken bread together around our respective family tables, the time runs out before the conversation. Pete and Liz stand out as being faithful members of the church, but are also nuanced, thoughtful, questioning, highly original, and singularly unafraid of hard questions and conversations. So I've decided to immortalize this conversation and share it with others, introducing our listeners to two of the most compassionate, mindful, and honest people I have the pleasure of knowing. Liz has served a mission. She has been every auxiliary president, gospel doctrine teacher, institute teacher, and most recently a counsellor in the State Relief Society Presidency. Liz is also a strong and outspoken feminist, a marriage guidance counsellor specialising in sexual addiction. Pete has also served a mission. He's been a bishop and a counsellor on the state presidency and most recently served as a stake high counsellor. Pete has led the MBA program at the University of Canterbury and consults and coaches senior managers and CEOs on organisational change and leadership. He's the author of two very good books on leadership, The Dance of Leadership and The Spirit of Leadership. In this podcast, we riff on life as Mormons in a small city on the outskirts of the world. We'll discuss the particulars of this Mormon moment and the challenges that we face as a community and sometimes families in conflict. We'll talk about things of the Spirit and the things of Christ, the reason most of us have any affiliation with the Church in the first instant. Pete and Liz, who join me now from Windsor, Vermont, on their one-year tour of the world, welcome to A Thoughtful Faith. Thank you. Thank you, Gina. Liz, could we begin with you? And perhaps we could start by talking a little bit about your background and then move on to talking about your introduction to the church. Well, I joined the church when I was 13. I, when I was living with my father, I lived with him for a year. My parents were separated, so I grew up in a single parent family. My mother had to work because there was no financial assistance in New Zealand at that time, not like there is now. So we grew up and we lived in what we call state housing, which I guess would be government housing. When I grew up, I was, the, I was the only girl in my class for a while that came from a single parent family. There was only one other girl that lived in government housing. 
and I think there was only two other girls in my class who mothers uh, where their mothers worked. So I struggled socially. I really struggled fitting in. So this was in Christchurch, Liz. And this was in Christchurch, New Zealand. So you were 13 when you joined the church. Now, how did that come about? I went to live with my father for a year. There'd been some trouble at home. And I went to live with my father for a year. And during that time, I received the discussions from the missionaries and I joined the church. Things didn't work out quite so well there as perhaps I had thought they might. And so after about a year, in fact, it was nearly a year to the day, I returned to Christchurch and returned to live with my mother, who then had moved in with her mother and father and her grandmother. So there were four generations of us living in the same house. And they were not very keen on me being Mormon or LDS. So there really wasn't a lot of support for me going to church. So I didn't. I stopped, got involved in drugs and other things. And when I was about 18, I kind of had these recollections of what I'd been taught by the missionaries. And the thing that really, the message that always stood out to me with the missionaries was the Joseph Smith story. I never forgot the Joseph Smith story or the Book of Mormon. I never, ever forgot it. And I guess I'd come to a, an existential crisis or maybe one of the many that I've had. And I decided that perhaps it might be a really good thing for me to, join, to, to go back to church. So I did. And I turned up at Fendleton and I was very nervous. I have a lot of empathy for people who come back to church after they've been away for a long time. It's a really, it's a very conflicted, difficult process. And for a long time, I felt like I wasn't good enough. I had a lot of repenting to do. It's, it's a long road and it's quite lonely. I remember feeling a bit of a misfit, but I kept on. So were you embraced in the community when you decided to come back to church? Yeah. There was a really good YSA program in Christchurch at the time. There was a big group there seemed. They were a very diverse group and at really different stages in their spiritual journey, I guess, or in their church experience. Not one of us was really on the same page, I think. We were all very different, very different. How did you manage putting together a really warm and nourishing community from so many disparate and diverse people? We just did. I don't recall there being... I mean, I'm sure there were people that may have found that a bit dif difficult. I felt quite okay with it. I didn't... I found it great because I was so wacky. There were some who were obviously much more staunch than others, as there are, but I never, ever felt like I wasn't welcome. But I always knew I was a bit different, that I was really aware of. And I can't, I don't think that would be fair to say that that was 
a byproduct of church. I think I felt like that before I even came in, came to church. As I mentioned about my not fitting in socially as a girl growing up, I, I think those kind of experiences follow us wherever we go, and I think we carry them with us. And so, and I can still feel like that now. And I just not, and I remind myself that this is an old story and it, it doesn't necessarily apply right now. So I think, I, I think it would be unfair of me to say that that's because of church that I felt that I didn't, that I was a bit different. I don't think it was all church, but I know that I was different to a few people that were there, but that difference, if anything, I think for some people may have made me more attractive. We, we've just spent the weekend with, you know, Penny and Larry, and they, uh, Penny talked about seeing me for the first time at church, and one of the things that she said was, well, you know, you, what you saw was what you got with Liz, and I really liked that. That's what she said. And so some people that felt good, you know, some people, it turned them off. But it never, ever created barriers, I felt. And we had such a good district president at the time and Ashley Roper he was such a good man and and he wasn't he didn't take the whole church leadership thing seriously I think sometime and and I, I, I want to be careful in how I say that because he was a really good district president and very pivotal part an important part in my reactivation but he was human as well. He didn't, I didn't find him pretentious in his church position. I found him to be very real and accepting. Can I comment? Can I come in here, Gina? Yeah, go ahead, Pete. A couple of things stand out to me. Well, just to go back to the young adult program, the young adult programs today are very different. In our young adult program, for example, we didn't permit chaperones. We, we did our thing entirely unsupervised. And if there was some conflict with the church organization, and there very rarely was, we'd just say, well, this is a social activity. And so there was none of the, um, the whole program was run by young adults. And my brother, Rob, was the key driver. And they did all sorts of things. Mm. We, we spent a lot of time in the outdoors. We would go to Queenstown skiing or Mount Cook, and uh, they went to Australia at one stage. Just all sorts of things. So it was a very vital young adult community. And there were all sorts of people, from people who were still actively drinking through to people who were preparing for missions or just back from missions, and everybody was made welcome. And, and without any direct supervision, everybody kept the standard. It was understood how things were to be, and that's, that's what happened. And Ashley Roper, the district president, he was lovely. He was a scientist, didn't have much truck with Americans, and particularly didn't want to be bossed around by anybody. On one occasion, he was told by the mission presidency to remove his beard. He'd been down in the Antarctic over winter and he had a beard when he came back and because he was told to remove it I think he kept it two or three years longer than he would have yeah so it was a, that was the sort of culture yet Ashley was a very devout man he was nine years district president I think without him the Christchurch state would never have been formed he was tireless totally committed to building the church he was one of the founding drivers of the, of the Christchurch state do you think that the fact that Ashley Roper as uh, the district president wasn't wowed by Americans, as were some people, and was even a bit misanthropic about the U.S. Um, are you, would you be of the opinion that that made the church more appealing or give it a little bit more local relevancy or um, in Christchurch? And I say that because, as you know, Christchurch is not a particularly fertile place for an American religion. 
in as much as there is baggage there, there's cultural baggage there, but also because it's very much an Anglican stronghold. Actually, no, probably not, because President Sontag was the mission president that worked with Ashley to create the state, and they were very good friends, and he was very accepting of Ashley, and Ashley was very accepting of him, and they kind of worked together. And in fact, President Sontag's contacts, because El Tom Perry came out just before the state was formed, and he said, you're not, it's not going to happen. Um, you don't, you've got too many um, prospective elders. You don't have the numbers. It's not going to happen. And I remember he stood up in the meeting and he put his arm around Ashley. Uh, and he was a very tall man and Ashley was quite short. And he just he told the whole district in front with Ashley, with his arm around Ashley, that we weren't going to be a state. And Ashley was obviously extremely upset by this. And he proceeded to comment that Washington Temple had just been built. And Ashley compared it to a giant Christmas cake. Um, no, wedding cake was the term. So it was that sort of. So Ashley was very upset, and he sort of got even with various um, unflattering uh, metaphors uh, in that meeting. But then President Sontag made a few calls, and um, a couple of weeks later, we were back on track. So it was quite a good, really. If anything, it was a kind of cross-cultural partnership that created the state. And Liz, you served a mission in the late nineteen seventies to Auckland. I'm wondering um, how that came about. I just felt really strongly that I wanted to serve a mission. I guess I, I mean, I'd been in the, I'd been, you know, active for a good couple of years by that stage, um, and that was an interesting time. I was very excited and wanted to serve a mission. And Penny McLeod was going on a mission at the same time. She wa- she also wanted to go, and her older sister Jenny had just gone on a mission. And at that time, there really weren't a lot of women going on missions there was uh i don't know if you remember beth catelty but she had just come back off a mission and but as far as sister missionaries going out into the mission field there really weren't a lot and i was there was a a group of missionaries in the i guess it was the wellington mission then and i put my papers in and one of these one of the elders had said to me, well, it's only the ugly, fat and plain women or sisters that go on missions because they can't get married. And it was really quite shocked. I felt quite shocked by that because then I, I, I thought, wow, am I plain and not marriageable? Is that why I'm going? And then, uh, and then another missionary said, if I'd known what I went on my mission, what I know now, I would never have gone on my mission. And that was quite, you know, that again was a really interesting comment. And then when I was on my mission, there was a, an elder in my area and he said, he said, I'd never marry a return missionary sister. And I got really angry. And I said, oh, why not? And he said, oh, because they know too much. And I said, you're damn right they know too much. They'd know way too much to marry you. <laughs> Nicely played, Liz. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if now we can turn to Pete and have you talk a little bit about yourself. Well, I was raised in Christchurch, and I, I had a mum and dad and my brother Robert and my sister Kathy, and we were raised in the Presbyterian Church. So Rob and I went every Sunday you know, from the time I could remember until I was 11, and when I was 11, mum's best friend, Helen Thompson, had sent the missionaries around. And mum had had the discussions about 11 years before, 1955. And she'd been very impressed with what the missionaries had to say, but she didn't join. 
at the time. But when they came around the next time, it was Elder Packer and Elder Lowe. She let them in, and I still remember them. They came in to the living room, and Elder Lowe sat down in Dad's chair, which was a bit of a no-no. And then he picked up some books, and he blew the dust off them. <laughs> so he offended Mum and Dad, basically in the first few minutes of his visit. And um, But they came in, and they, they had flannel boards in those days, and they unwound the flannel board and put the thing. I remember the apostasy. They had this little pyramid of, you know, the apostles and et cetera. And then they pull it out and it sort of came down. So that was the apostasy. And then they talked about Joseph Smith. I just knew it was true. To me, it felt like I'd known it my entire life. And I was quite devout as a Presbyterian kid. And I loved Bible stories. I believed in Christ. But it was just a huge opening for me. And I just, when they came into the house, they radiated the spirit. I could feel the truthfulness of what they um, what they were saying. And even going to church, we went along. It was branch two. Uh, Pete Van Balagui was the branch president. And I guess those meetings were the usual meetings. You know, some would have been good and some not so good. But just going there, I could feel the spirit. Going to Fendleton and just, it was such a lovely spirit there. And we felt very welcomed by the community. And then we'd go home. And my uncle and my father would be fighting with mum. She'd be in tears every Sunday. It was, it was a tough period. Well, I remember going in. Um, when we were investigating, we had a fireside, and we went up to the Bailey's house. And that was Edith Bailey and uh, her husband. Um, I think Edith's, I think she's in hospital now. She's elderly. Her husband died a few years ago. Just a little fireside, and it felt really nice. And then we got involved in the um, primary and then the youth programs. It always felt like a family to me really right from the start. So it felt very welcoming. But for me, the thing that stood out, even with the missionaries, it wasn't what they said. It was the spirit that came with what they said. It was very discernible to me, both at church and in the discussions. And then when I was a bit older, when I was about 16, Joe Hewitt was the branch president and he took me under his wing. I was the the branch executive secretary at 16 and he'd take me out a couple of nights a week and just really kept an eye on me. And I was in branch councils from the time I was a mid-teenager right through to my mission and always with these branch presidents that sort of included me, listened to what I had to say. Joe Hewitt taught me how to give talks. We'd have sacrament meetings. I always sat next to him and then he'd just get me impromptu to stand up and give a five-minute talk on various topics. So he sort of trained me. Wonderful upbringing, particularly since dad. He was a, he was a good dad, but he was a bit of a drinker and alcoholic. And so the church became a real father figure for me and very important one. So it sounds like home was a little bit of a religious battleground. Did things calm down after a while, Pete? No, Dad calmed down. He was a good guy and he kind of got usurped, really. I think when he married Mum, she was very shy. She said when she first would go to Dad's family, she was so shy, she'd sort of hide in the bedroom and, you know, she found all that very difficult. But three months after we joined the church, she was the mission primary president, travelling all over the South and Lower North Island. And she had a succession of callings. So she got, she just gradually developed. So by the time we were in our teens, Dad was very much on the back foot. He had to just, uh, yeah. So there were more of us than him. So, so you know, so yeah, the battle was well and truly lost for poor old dad. And so things had turned uh, and he was good. But, and he was actually very supportive. He used to run us all to church. And he ran mum to all of her callings and she never had a license. So he, he was actually very, very good. He'd moan a bit, but after, you know, 
after not too long, that all stopped. And all our family were great as well. Rob and I have conducted family funerals and administered, given priesthood blessings to family members who aren't members of the church. So it's, yeah, things are very different. Were your extended family members noticing that there was a qualitative difference when you all joined the church? Yeah, uh, yeah, probably, yes. Because we didn't have the problems that maybe some other extended family members had. We didn't drink, we didn't do drugs, we were pretty straight up. And that was discernible to parents in our extended family who were struggling with kids who were experimenting with different things. And I think they noticed that. Yeah, they would have, they would have seen those differences. Not that we were better, you know, but that there was a difference, I think. Can I say something here, Gina? I, I think that Rob and Pete were notoriously fast drivers and had a reputation in the family for being, you know, bogans on the road, really, and high, high risk in getting into a car with them. So the basic, the basic people that they were, it never really changed. Marg grew to be a better woman and, she, you know, she was always very hospitable, very generous, very kind, very accepting, very family-oriented. That just got better and better. So, and, and Rob and Pete drove very fast, had run-ins with the law, all of those sorts of things. So there was nothing pretentious in their family that would lead anybody to feel that they thought that they were better than anybody else because they were Mormons. So I think that might have helped. Pete, could we talk now about your decision to go on a mission and what led up to it? Yeah. Well, I was, um, in my late teens, I was obsessed with cars. And I think I had a Fiat Arbath. It was the only one in the country, which I just loved. And I was at university. I was the branch mission leader, actually. But I didn't want to go on a mission. But Spencer Kimball, at a conference talk, I went to conference and he said, the question has been asked, should every young man go on a mission? And he said, yes, every worthy young man should go on a mission. And so I was cornered and I just, I knew I had to go. And so I did. And I wasn't excited about it. I'm a bit embarrassed to say now, but I'd seen the film Papillon. Do you ever remember that? The guy was in solitary confinement for two or three years. And I thought, well, if that's what the prophet says, I'll go. And it can't be worse than that. And so, um, yeah, so I, so I went, went up to the Auckland Mission and really, really enjoyed it. Were you there at the same time? Uh, no, no, Liz, I came home and then Liz went you know, after that. So were you dating at the time? No. no. <laughs> Liz, you laugh. <laughs> Do tell. You'll be editing this a bit, Gina? <laughs> no, no, we weren't dating. I was a bit too loud. A bit too unorthodox in the way I said things. <laughs> but you were in the same young adult circles. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Pete, what were your recollections of Liz? Did you did she ring any bells with you at the time? Oh well she was just around and we actually used to pick her up for church. Rob and I would go and pick her up. She doesn't remember this. I think she remembers Rob. Yeah. And I do. So and I just remember she dressed a bit differently and I hadn't sort of noticed her. She was just part of the team. Yeah, she was pretty uh, loquacious. <laughs> yeah, so she would, yeah, she would chat away, but she was just sort of there, you know. And so I had one or two little sort of impressions in her direction, but nothing. That she was just one of the one of the group. And he did have his eyes set on others. <laughs> yeah, like everybody else. <laughs> We won't embarrass that person. Um, 
So let's talk about, as you come home, from, uh, Pete, did you have a good mission? Yeah, I did. I really enjoyed it. I, um, I mean, it was tough. I spent a lot of time on the, on the Auckland North Shore and we did a lot of tracting. It was pretty tough, but uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the missionaries. I, I really enjoyed teaching with the Spirit. And it was a real, real affirmation of the truthfulness of the gospel. My testimony was built up. I was a zone leader for quite a long time. I enjoyed my mission presidents. It was just a, it was, yeah, a great experience. I had a lot of sister missionaries when I was a zone leader. I think we had three companionships of sister missionaries when I was in central Auckland. Really enjoyed them. They were really good missionaries, yeah, very effective. And so I enjoyed that part as well. So tell us a little bit about how you got together. That's always a fun story. Sure. Well, I had quite a crush on Pete before I went on my mission. And um, why? I don't know why. I don't know. I I just found him very attractive and I really liked him like quite a lot. I remember him standing in front of the fireplace at his home at 371 River Road. And he had on a striped shirt and a, a, a kind of Aaron sweater. And uh, I remember looking at him and thinking, oh, he's so gorgeous, you know. <laughs> and, of course, I, I'm one of these people that I just – I have really tried hard to be mysterious, and I just don't seem to be able to be mysterious. And so, of course, I'm very transparent, and it, it's not hard to read me sometimes, and which is a little – it can be good and bad. So I'm pretty confident that – it was seen by others that I had a big crush on him. And I, rem- I remember praying before I- my mission papers were in, you know, I mean, it was all, it was a done deal. I was definitely going on my mission. And I just remember one time praying before I went and I was living with my grandparents at the time and I was in my room and I pray out loud when I'm alone and I was praying out loud and I, I just, I, I said, I remember saying something like, if I marry anyone, let it be someone like Pete Camock. And I heard, I heard a voice quite clearly and distinctly that said, wait and be patient. And I lifted my head up off the bed. I got up. I thought there was someone listening to me. I went over to the wardrobe. I looked in the wardrobe to see if there was someone there. I just remember thinking, oh, my word, someone's been listening to my prayers. But there was nobody there. And so I just kind of thought, well, okay, shelved it and went on my mission and Things changed with Pete while I was on my mission. Things changed for him. So it was kind of partway through my mission, Pete had decided that maybe he would like to marry me or he certainly was interested. So when I got home... Let's just back up a second. So you're on your mission when Pete has a feeling that he ought to marry you. Did he communicate that to you while you were on your mission? Yes. By a letter? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Should I tell the story? <laughs> yeah, Pete, you, you better tell the yeah, story. Yeah, well, when I got home from my mission... He could have any woman he wanted. <laughs> yeah, and for the short, skinny man, this was a pleasant experience. <laughs> so I, I dated quite a lot, and it was really fun. It was really nice. and Mostly big-breasted women. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm sure Dean won't put that in. <laughs> Uh, no, Gina will. <laughs> um, so I'll just regain my composure here. And but Liz also really liked me, and I could, and I really liked that. So I kind of flirted with her, and I remember going to see her. She worked um, at the ANZ Bank 
in High Street. And I remember going in to see her and I just walked in just for a quick visit and she just lit up when I was there and it was really, it was really nice. Anyway, I was, I was dating and I went to the temple. I was up at the temple and uh, with another uh, friend of mine and a, bunch, and a few young adults and we had a mini and to cut costs, I think there were six of us in the mini, which was fairly crowded and we went up to Auckland. In those days, you could go and see missionaries serving in the field. It wasn't a problem. We got permission from the mission president and we went up to, uh, to visit and I remember walking in and just seeing Liz I wasn't even talking to her. I just saw her. We'd never dated or anything. I just had this overwhelming spiritual uh, impression. In fact, I was quite teary. And I just had that moment of absolutely knowing that um, I fell in love with her just just in that moment. And um, yeah, so that was it. So I told the person I was with that um, I was going to marry Liz. <laughs> and uh, And strangely enough, the year before, I'd been up um, for, they used to have the Hamilton, um, they used to have a pageant at uh, Christmas, and I went up for the pageant with another girl who I was dating. I saw Liz, she said, oh, hi, Pete, how are you going? How's it going with so-and-so? And And I said, okay, but I'm going to marry you, Liz. And I thought, why on earth did I say that? Where did that come from? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, at this point, Liz, you recall this? I do, and I said to him, don't be so stupid. (laughs) And I just said, I'll see you later, and left. (laughs) I didn't believe him. I just did not believe him. But anyway, after that experience, and I have to say that's the most profound spiritual experience of my entire life, and I went home and wrote a letter saying to Liz that I wanted to marry her. She was still on a mission, so it was a little bit um, impolitic. But yeah, and that's, that's sort of that's how it started. And Liz, you received this letter, much to your surprise, no doubt. I, I did. And it, yeah, I was really blown away it was like oh my word I had no idea but I wrote back and said oh that would be nice (laughs) and so we just we wrote from then and then when I got home things were a little rough I think you know like um, Penny had got home off her mission before me and she was had plans to go to teachers college and you know she had all these plans set out about what she wanted to do and there was Pete and and I you know I sometimes wondered I was a bit scared and I wondered about whether I was getting the short straw how come I was getting married when it seemed like everybody else was having a good time and we got there, and it, it's worked. So no doubt in either of your minds this was meant to be. Yeah, I think it was. I'm a chronic maximizer. You know, I can't even buy a computer without three years of research. I don't know if I could have married anybody without some sort of spiritual aid, you know, because it's such a big decision. So it was a real blessing, actually. So you get married, and you move to Auckland. Is that right? Yeah, um, I did my master's in Auckland, and we... Yeah, we had two years doing that. And I, yeah, we prayed that I could get a job. My, my ideal job was to be an academic at the University of Canterbury. I thought that would be amazing. And I remember praying about it. And a few days later, I got a call from the head of department and the Department of Management then at um, uh, University of Canterbury asking me to do a job, uh, you know, just a temporary uh, lectureship there. But that carried on and I was there for 30 years. So you moved back to Christchurch and to take up a position at Canterbury. How long had you been away? A couple of years, two mm-hmm. and a half years. We got married in 1980. We yeah. went up to Auckland in 81. 82, so three So eight, it was 83. Yeah. yeah. We had Michael at that stage, and I was pregnant with Lucy. 
So during your time in Auckland, you served in a bishopric for the first time, is that right? Yes, yes it was, yeah. Big ward, 18th ward in, uh, in Auckland. I think there were 360-odd used to come out to mm-hmm. Sacramento, so it was very different from our Christchurch experience. So did you enjoy the large units of Auckland, or do you prefer the smaller ones in Christchurch? Oh, I think I preferred the smaller ward. The larger wards are a bit anonymous. People kind of disappear. But, of course, you've got resource, uh, which helps, though. And, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. But I quite liked Christchurch. I like the small wards. I like the kind of closer community uh, feel. We had a good time in 18th Ward, though. We yeah, we had, did. We had Nerol and Panetta, who yep. were round the corner, and then there were the Brunts that moved in, Peter and Leone, and it was, yeah, it was quite different to Christchurch because there was quite a strong Polynesian influence in 18th Ward. So um, it, it was quite different at that time. You know, like Christchurch was pretty predominantly white, it's quite different now. Um, it was also yeah. quite intellectual in 18th Ward. Like, the Brunts had just got back um, from New York, I think, and that um, Peter had been trying to get established as, a, as an actor in the States, and he loved movies, so we kind of got introduced to movies mm. through him. Mm. And Neryl and, and Panetta were thoughtful, you know, lots of conversation and, and stuff happening. So it was, it was quite intellectually stimulating as well. There were some very cool people. Yeah, there were. Mm. Yeah. So was that on the North Shore? No. No, no that was in 18th Ward is kind of around Sandringham Way. Yeah. Mount Eden, sort of that way. The North Shore has always been the most conservative part of the church in New Zealand. That, I don't want to stereotype it because I served my mission most, mostly on the shore and really enjoyed it. But, um, yeah, it was very different to 18th Ward and, and very, very different to Christchurch. Mm. And it still is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that would be so. So upon your return to Christchurch, you're immediately called into the state presidency. Is that right? Yeah. I, I've got to tell you about when Pete got called to the state presidency because this is quite quite funny and I think David Mac- I think it was to- with David McIntyre and Ashley Roper in fact it was wasn't it yeah. and we we'd had a phone call that the someone oh that's right that David was it David who interviewed us yes, David yeah we, and, um and uh, <laughs> and so we had a we had a phone call and I said to Pete oh the state president wants to see us and you know I'm wondering what it's about and I, you know I was getting yeah, you know, I was quite curious and a bit nervous, and 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 the conversation was going on. And then I said to Pete, "You know, maybe it's actually not about you at all. Maybe the state president wants to see us about me. Maybe there's something for me." And it just stopped Pete right in his tracks because he never thought for one minute that it would be that somebody would be interested in having me. Well, and neither did I. But you know, it was kind of that moment of. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that was a bit embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) So he comes around and he extends that call. Were you surprised? Oh, yeah, I was. Were you? Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, he was a great state president. He was such a great state president. Mm. David McIntyre and Ashley Roper, they they were just wonderful to serve with Mm. in every way. David was quite new in the church, actually, but he was humble and, yeah. Very loving. Yeah, it was wonderful. It's the early 1980s, Pete's on the state presidency and Liz enrolls in feminist studies. Yeah, so um, I decided to do feminist studies 101 and I think (laughs) it was their first or second year. first year. It was their first year. And I loved it. I just loved it. Rosemary Novitz and... 
Yeah, it was just fantastic. And it completely opened my eyes. And I guess it's one of those things, you know, sometimes, I guess, you know, once you step through, or once I, once I stepped through that door, there was no going back, really. I couldn't, I couldn't go back to seeing things as they were. And it created quite a, you know, quite a bit of issues because I was seen as the man-hating, I was seen as a hairy-legged, man-hating, ball-breaking feminist in the state. That's how I was seen. And I remember being in a young marrieds group with Alistair Rogers, who I think was, were they, I, I think he was a bishop or something at the time. And they were, and he was teaching a class on on marriage. And the question came up about why is it that women struggle with men? You know, some it was something like that. And every you know, people were giving these answers and and Alistair was writing them on the board. <laughs> and then I put my hand up and I said, Well, I think it's really simple. Men are bastards. And that was <laughs> just completely like he didn't put my response on the board and he goes oh thank you very much sister Kim and and people were shocked you know one woman refused to go back to the group but it's interesting Gina if I could come in here a couple of things I remember one after class Liz would come up to the department where I was teaching and you know I was good friends with the academics there so everybody would close their doors because Liz would come up (laughs) and chastise us all for being men. You know, there were a series of, and so she'd kind of, yeah, it was really funny. So she'd, and, and, the, and the day that really brought Pete down was when I walked in and I said, because we just had the feminist collective, you know, um, give us a presentation. And I walked into Pete's room and I said, well, I could be a lesbian, but I choose to be heterosexual at the moment. And so therefore I choose to be married to you. <laughs> Was was that a relief, Pete? Oh, no, he was really mad. He was really mad. Oh, no, I was scared. I thought, whoa, what's going on here? Because <laughs> we had a visiting professor who came out from uh, University of Washington, and his wife had left him for another woman after doing feminist studies. <laughs> and um, he took me aside and said, listen, you've got to just be careful here. Things could go bad. <laughs> uh, um, Gina, the thing I observed, it was really quite interesting because Liz was a stay-at-home mum for many years, totally committed to the kids. And uh, that's not to say that others aren't. And But very, very orthodox in terms of her practice as a Mormon woman. You know, And it's really interesting that sometimes in the church, um, what you say seems to be a whole lot more important than what you do. And um, so even though she, so she had lots to say, and so she was branded as a kind of feminist, but actually she was living very orthodox Mormon life. And it's kind of interesting. I've always... And I, I'm quite struck sometimes by meetings where there's members of the church who are living one way but sort of offering another kind of discourse. Yeah, so Liz was always, you know, right through the, wouldn't you say, Liz? I mean, living quite, yeah. quite conventionally, you know, in terms of church, you know, culture at least. I, yeah, but my, my background was very different to, to the kind of homogenous Mormon family in Utah. So my family life was very, very different. And I remember one time being in a Relief Society class and we were being taught about being, you know, some lesson on being sealed to our parents. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not ready to be sealed to my, my mother. I, you know, there's, 
I just don't want to be. And I was married with children at this point, and someone turned around and said to me, you just need to get over it. And the feeling that I've, I've had over the years around my experience coming up against an LDS ideal is I've often felt that I've been shut up because people have found my story uncomfortable. And so they quickly want to shut me up because it's not compatible with the Mormon myth. You know, it's just not compatible with the Mormon idea that this is how families should be. And so I've, I, I have had those experiences from time to time. So Liz, you're studying in feminist studies, Pete's on the uh, stake presidency, and you're sharing your more radical views around the stake very liberally and gaining a bit of a reputation. Did you ever get the impression, however, that you were not wanted in the church? Um, I, I, nobody came forward and said, you know, you need to toe the party line. I never... I never felt like that. I, I, I felt, yeah, I didn't feel like that. It doesn't mean to say that conversations perhaps weren't had, but I was never privy to them and nobody ever said anything to me. One of the things that I recall about David McIntyre, and as you know, he was my foster father, he was very, very supportive of feminism and feminist rights. And I do remember him being very enamoured of you, Liz, and particularly proud of your very strident feminist opinions. Would that be your recollection? Yeah, I thought he was quite tolerant of me. And I remember um, I remember at the time when he was state president, there were a couple of things that happened. One was that there was a group run in the state for women that were victims of sexual abuse, and it was run by uh, a woman who was not LDS, and myself and other women in the stake were in that group, and that was supported, and it ran for a period, oh, I think maybe six or eight weeks, yeah. and the idea was for, you know, the idea was to provide support and help women move forward, and that was really healthy. I remember us having um, Relief Society stake days for women, and at one of those, we had Amnesty International come and speak to us. And one of the things that um, I, I had made the statement to some people who thought that that was contrary to, to church belief, I said, well, if Christ had, if Amnesty International had been around when Christ was arrested, they would have been politicking on his behalf because he was a political prisoner. So, you know, those sorts of comments were accepted. And then... Um, there was also the, at the time, there was the bill being passed to decriminalise to decriminalize homosexuality. And I remember being in a meeting with a group of people where that was being kind of espoused that we need to protest against this. And I said, well, what about people that commit adultery or what about that? What, why aren't we doing something about that? And, and the person said to me, well, that's normal. And I said, no, it's not. There's nothing. What, what's the difference? You know, like if we're going to discriminate against one group, we need to put all groups in this, camp, in, in this camp. And there was really quite strong discourse around these things. That seemed, 
okay. You know, I never, nobody, nobody went away hating each other. There might have been feathers ruffled. There might have been, oh, wow, that was a bit over the top, you know, that sort of thing. But I don't think, I don't think it created a major division. That, that's my recollection of it. Well, I recall when I was on the state presidency, we got a letter from the area presidency um, suggesting that we mobilise the saints in opposition to the decriminalisation of homosexuality. And David McIntyre was the state president. He read the letter and he said, um, actually, I'm in favour of decriminalising homosexuality. What do you think, Ashley? Yes, I'm in favour too. What do you think, Pete? Yes, I'm in favour. So the letter was just put to one side and that was the end of the matter. Really. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, Pete, what kind of influence was Liz's feminism having on you, particularly as a priesthood leader? Oh, I think quite a bit. I mean, there are a number of things going on, you know, as I kind of grew up. I think there are a couple of other things happening as well. Like when we had Mackenzie, he was our first home birth, and that was a real eye-opener. Yeah, it was, actually. We got mixed up with all sorts of sort of citron-driving, homeopathic-type people. So that was really cool. And about that time, Liz had started psychodrama, which came out of counselling, and that was pretty wild as well. So that was going on, and then feminist studies. So a whole lot of things happening simultaneously that kind of opened things up. Um, so for me, I think I was just slowly growing up, really. And, and I think Liz, the great blessing of being married to Liz was, I, I, I don't know, that through the relationship and through some of her experiences, and then later on, what was obviously family experiences I hadn't noticed, I just began to see the world a little differently. So when the, when the group started with the, the women who had been uh, sexually abused, it pretty became, became pretty clear that 20 to 30% of the women in the state had um, gone through that. And so as a state presidency, we were very keen to, to do something about it. And I think Liz was a key driver of that sort of initiative. Yeah, so for me, it was all fine. It was uh, David was always highly supportive of any initiatives that were taken. There was just never a, never a kind of clash, really, I don't think. No. I, I don't know if you recall this, Pete, but I remember when uh, you were on the state presidency and you gave a speech, and one day you said in state conference, one day you said, it's not your right as husbands and priesthood leaders to expect your wife to put on her best dress and serve you. And then you proceeded to call them out on their unrighteous dominion over women. Now, as a young woman, this was utterly thrilling. <laughs> that's been a really important mantra in my own marriage, as Nathan will really be able to attest. <laughs> Now, Pete, I'm wondering if we could now turn a little bit to a discussion of your own work in leadership and paradigm shifts and change management and think about what's happening from your theoretical and professional perspective in terms of church leadership. What ideas are you taking from your professional life to church life? Yeah, well, I think for me, the church would appear to be going through a very interesting phase because what happens with organizations, now I put a caveat on this in that the church is different. So sometimes there can be a difference, you know, because we're who we are and, and because of the gospel that's infused through the church. But generally organizations like ours, they start off with a very charismatic kind of phase, as we did with the prophet. And once there's been that kind of charismatic outpouring, that'll carry an organization along for quite a while. But then it needs to be organized and there needs to be bureaucracy and there needs to be sort of patterns and processes that uh, enable it to do its work and kind of project the message out to a broader community. And um, I think the church has done 
We had Brigham, who was a great manager, and then the church got more and more international with David O. McKay. Then we've had correlation, and uh, and then a, a really fairly significant bureaucratic structure to project the church globally. But what happens at that point in most organisations is that the bureaucracy begins to detract from the kind of initial spirit and message that there was the kind of founding, um, usually the founding entrepreneur, if it's a business organisation, bought. And at that time, the bureaucracy has to be, it needs to be challenged and and have limits placed on it because an organisation will kind of falter. And I, I see a few signs of that in the church. And what can happen is that people get confused with the bureaucracy and the policy, and they can get confused between that and what is doctrine and spirit. And so there's often a very complex navigation that has to take place uh, between the two. I think we're at a phase, because the church is now so international and so diverse, and there are so many different voices, and because of social media, things get communicated so quickly that the complex voices of the church uh, kind of rise up. And it's difficult for a a kind of top-down bureaucracy to handle all of that. And I think that's where we're at today. So in terms of theory and leadership models and I suppose the sociology of organisations, what do you think is going on at the moment? Well, what happens with an organisation, when it's dealing with complexity, there are generally two responses. It can regress into a greater conservatism and try and kind of hold things even more tightly. And so you see that all over the world at the moment where you get sometimes this is moving into fundamentalism as a way of kind of holding the enterprise and kind of stopping things getting out of control. And almost invariably, that doesn't work. And if we do that as a church community, we're going to hold with a series of very orthodox folks and a lot of other people are going to leave. And so there's going to be a great loss for the church. So the way forward in leadership terms is always to what you have to do is you generate very clear rules and guidelines, Joseph Smith's correct principles, and then you just open it up a little bit more. And and the way through is with respectful conversation, where you allow the conversation. And sometimes the conversation's at the periphery. It can be incredibly uncomfortable, and but the conversation's ahead. And then you come up with a combination between always the revelation that comes from the prophet and from the from the leading brethren, and that kind of holds the enterprise. But within that, you allow movement and you allow innovation to emerge, the way it did with the blacks and the priesthood under Spencer Kimball. You know, there's an amalgam of, of spirit and kind of social conversation that can really lead to, to, to real movement forward. And I think it's where we're at. My hope is that we can get better at holding the conversation and at allowing that, but within um, safe boundaries that hold the, the doctrinal purity of the church and allow the revelation to continue, but that also allow people voice and allow things to change in a way that they need to. I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, it does make sense. But one of the arguments, of course, is that the church is as it ought to be at any given time. This is God's church, so this is what we have. And any change will come through God. Now, what's your feeling about that? Well, the brethren can only get so much inspiration and all the inspiration that's ever occurred in the church has come out of um, some sort of social context. So if you think of the word of wisdom, it came out of Emma's concern over the brethren, you know, spitting tobacco. If you think about blacks and the priesthood, it evolved over many, many years. And then finally, uh, Spencer Kimball received the revelation after being confronted with the complexities of the church membership in Brazil 
and just a whole series of other things. And so there's always a need for, for voice. Social voice then provokes the question. And if, and if, the, if the voice isn't diverse and, and dealing with the complex social issues of the day, the question's never asked. So I, I, I think it's very seldom that a prophet receives a bolt out of the blue revelation and then tells everybody. In fact, if you listen, there have been recent talks by Elder Bednar and um, Elder Scott and a series of others on revelation. And it's almost always a quiet developing of inspiration that is um, contextual, socially contexted. And so um, I think there needs to be a meeting of the two with the people asking the questions and then people receiving revelation in the midst of those difficult questions. So this moment that we find ourselves in, which has been emphatically marked by the excommunication of Kate Kelly, seems on one hand to be sending a message that the conversation is over. We go back to orthodoxy. We are not an inclusive church. We're not an open church. We are, as we have been in the past, very, very conservative, very, very exclusive. Now, what are your thoughts about that? Is the conversation over? No, I think it's the beginning. Mm. I mean, Kate is asking questions that are uncomfortable that people on average don't want to hear. However, the, the challenge I've got with, with Kate, uh, for me, there's, there's two issues here. I think the ordained woman proposal is, in, in leadership terms, it's a simple answer to a complex question. And I certainly think her excommunication was uh, a, a simple response to a complex situation. I, I think both of them suffer from the difficulty of, of not being in the complexity. I don't have a strong view either way on women having the priesthood, but I don't think it's going to... I think the issues are more complex than that. In what way, Pete? What's complex? Well, if I talk to women, and I'll let Liz can speak on this far more effectively than me, but we were staying with friends in Arizona recently, and, you know, Arizona are much more conservative. They're all Republican folks, but... When you warm them up, all of the women I spoke to over the weekend have got plenty to say on women in the church. And to them, it's not a, it's not a crisis, but there are, in their perception, many opportunities for improvement. Uh, we met another friend of ours that you know who was traveling through going back to Christchurch and um, really upset with a number of things that have happened to her that are about men and the treatment of women, and most of them revolving around poor listening on the part of men. So I think there are a number of issues for women in the church and could be the ordination thing is one way through, but I, I think it's much more complex than that than just a single ordination of women. And I also think that we can't deal with this stuff by excommunication. Somebody said it's a 19th century response to a 21st century problem. And in many ways, that captures the essence of complexity. You take a simple response to what's a complex issue. I think we have to do a little better than that. So you've been a bishop before, Pete. If you had Kate Kelly in your ward, what would you have done? Yeah, that's a really good question. And let me say, having worked as a bishop and been with bishops, I don't know anything about this bishop, but I doubt that he relished this opportunity. I have never yet met a bishop who didn't have the best intentions in mind. You know, he would have been very thoughtful about it. But I believe in conversation. I think we meet people in open conversation and we talk and we listen and we empathize and we, we put aside some of our preconceptions and we try and come to a meeting of minds. So for me, yeah, I, I think I would have kept the conversation going. I was upset over the um, excommunication because it makes my job as a, as a dad and an extended family extremely difficult. It, it's very upsetting for the, um, for the woman in my family. And uh, I, I was upset with that as a, as a response. 
yeah, for, for all sorts of reasons. And the main one is that it signals to people that we can't have the conversation. And I think that's critical. And as a bishop, no, that wouldn't have been my call. Uh, but I don't know if he was asked to do that or what the circumstances were. So if you had had pressure on you to have a church court by higher up, what would you have done? If I'd been asked, uh, I would have declined. And it would be out of order, wouldn't it, for a bishop not to be able to make those calls for themselves, in the case of women in particular? Yes, I think so. But again, I, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know the nuanced experience of either Kate or the bishop in that ward. But on the face of it, yeah, I, I, I don't know who benefited from that. It, it certainly wasn't helpful in my family. And I think lots more people have become involved in ordained women since Kate was um, excommunicated than they were before. So I just, I, I, I struggled to see how it was a helpful thing to do, either for her or for, you know, the many folks looking at it. But again, I, I don't know the particular nuanced details of the experience in, in the wards. But that's, that's my judgment from where I sit. So from both of your perspectives, the situation with Kate Kelly has had a direct impact on your own family. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? Do you want to talk to that, Liz? Well, um, we have two daughters. Uh, one is Lucy's 30, 31 and Alice is 23. And we have two daughter, daughters-in-law, which says a lot about the church, actually, that our sons are married and our daughters are not. And so our daughters-in-law, um, one is about the same, is about, I think she's 33 with two children, and then other daughter, and she's American. And then we have a Fijian daughter-in-law who um, is 27. And our son, our American daughter-in-law and son live in America. And our Fijian daughter-in-law and son live in New Zealand. And they live in Dunedin in, in the South Island. And all four of our daughter daughters, I'll call them daughters so that I'm not confusing myself, but all four of these women that are in our family, they're all highly educated women, all of them. Uh, Ite, our Fijian daughter-in-law, is at the moment doing a PhD. They've all travelled, some more extensively than others, but they've all travelled. They're very bright, articulate, and they're very faithful women. You know, Mike and you know our, our eldest son and his wife married in the temple, and our eldest son Mike served a mission, and you know Chris came into our lives not long after Mike's mission and it, it was just, you know, it was a meant to be. It was an absolute blessing, really. And then Mac met Ite at university. And so these women are really intelligent, thinking women. And, and there's real cultural diversity amongst them as well. So we've got Fijian, New Zealand and American. So they've all come from very different demographic, social, ethnic backgrounds. And, and I'm not sure that any one of them is really on the bandwagon for ordained women, but it's been very painful to watch the impact on them around, well, if this is what happens to Kate Kelly, what does that mean for me? And our daughter Lucy said that she felt that nothing was going to change in the church until our generation died which was, you know, a bit shocking for me. But it's, it's really hard. You know, both of our daughters, Lucy and Alice, well, neither of them are married. 
and they're trying to be faithful, sometimes perhaps a little bit better than others, but they're trying and and they have questions and they're not part of this homogenous group of Mormon women that seem to come out of Utah, and I, I do say that, you know, in that Bible Belt area, they're quite different. And, you know, Lucy talks about being single in the church at 31, and her choices are that she mixes with the YSAs who are 18, 19, 20, and 23, or she goes into the same group as her grandmother for the, for the single adults. You know, it's like, where does she fit? And uh, Alice, who doesn't like the whole culture around marriage in the church and it's not that she's opposed to marriage but it's like why are the only women that seem to have in any kind of influence in the church or or seem that it's like the step from being single to being married suddenly gives a married woman more power more authority you know a whole lot of other things that as a single woman they don't have and I think there's that kind of diversity is really rampant in the church. And then we have Ite, who none of this speaks to her. It's like she's a faithful, delightful woman, and she comes from Fiji, and it's a much more simple for her, but at the same time complicated or complex. So within my own family or within our family, there's this diversity of voice but somehow the, the message that's got across from this for them, not somehow, but the message that's got across for them is they're being shut down. How do I have a voice here? Where is my story? And I get that because I experienced, as I mentioned previously, a little bit of that in my church experience, but for different reasons. And I really believe, and I, you know, I, I guess I need to be careful how I say that because I don't necessarily want it to come across negatively, but I really do believe there is a model that has been created of how people need to be in the church, and particularly women, particularly women. And I think it applies to men as well, because otherwise I would be being the kind of putting the same homogenous stamp on women is, you know, so I think it's the same for men, but different, that women need to be a certain way. And I, I struggle with that because it's wrong. It's really wrong. And I, I, I think that's the thing that's the most hurtful about this. Some might argue, Liz, that you've raised feminist daughters you're a feminist yourself, and even though you were reasonably orthodox in your decisions to be a stay-at-home mother, the upshot is that the marriage market for young Mormon feminists is pretty slim. Do you have any regrets about making those parenting decisions? But, you know, the regret that I have, Gina, is that I didn't offer them another model because I brought them up with the Mormon model even though I was radical around some things I brought them up teaching them that that marriage was important that having children was important that you know along with other things you know we 
along with other things, but I taught them about the value of marriage and waiting to meet the right person, all of those sorts of things. The thing that sickens me is that that hasn't worked. So I taught that model, believed that model, and was living that model for our family, and it hasn't worked for our daughters. So who is wrong? Is it me? Is it the church? Or is it them? I don't think it's anybody. I just think, and I wish that I had said to them, it doesn't matter what you do in your life, whether you're married or single, there are many options, many ways of living a life. And if marriage doesn't come your way, then have fun. You know, I wished I'd said that. I wished I'd been more aware of the possibility that perhaps it, they could have done things differently. It just never occurred to me. And I feel like I've really let them down. As women in the church, I feel like I've really let them down. And I feel very sorry about that. I wished, I wished that I had helped them to see that in God's eyes, we can be anything. We don't need to be attached to a man to be accepted in his eyes. And I believe that, but I didn't necessarily teach that. Pete, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I'm just thinking, um, for me, looking at my daughter's growing up in the church, it's challenging. and uh, Particularly in Christchurch. Yeah, particularly in Christchurch, because there's no, we're with our friends in Arizona over the weekend, and their daughters are dating. They've got huge youth programs, huge young, young adult programs, uh, just so many options that make the church a really vibrant, vital social experience. Whereas the, often our girls, they almost stay active despite their church experience. And so for me, I find, however, that... Our relationship with Christ can transcend all of that. Mm. We can find a way forward. And if we're able to access the spirit and receive inspiration in our lives, we, we can get through all of that. We can transcend some of these cultural norms and we can find Christ in the church and in the gospel and our lives can be uplifted by that. What, what's upset me with the Kate Kelly episode, and I guess it goes right back to Prop 8 and the whole conservative thing, our son Mike says that the church, if there's a group, it'll always regress to the most conservative person in the room. And I think that's true. And so for me, we have our daughters who are struggling to find fulfillment within the church community because some things aren't working for them. And then we bring in Prop 8. And then we bring in this kind of conservative thing. And, and a lot of that to us as New Zealanders, it, it, it politicizes the church in a direction that it's not consistent with how we see the world. Even for me, Prop 8 there's global warming, there's inequality between rich and there's a poverty. whole series of things. There's poverty. poverty, many things we could be focusing on. I think that we'd be better celebrating marriage rather than getting into opposing gay marriage. So for me, it just made it difficult. And I'll just say one, one more thing. The way through this is always through personal relationship with Christ. And the Spirit reveals our way forward very softly, very gently, it's a very reflective, meditative, quiet experience. But it's quite easy now for us to develop a stereotype of the church. And I don't think it's a truthful one necessarily, but as conservative, Republican, regressive, etc. And that can stir people up to anger. And, and if on top of that, um, you're a woman in the church and you're kind of struggling with what's kind of on offer, can make it difficult. So there's, for me, there's a double whammy where it can be both 
hard to live. And some of the recent stuff, and the, with Kate Kelly's thing coming up as a kind of extra arm to this, it makes it difficult for, my, I think, my daughters to find a way forward when you're all stirred up and upset already with a church experience is not necessarily delivering the way you'd like, it can be difficult to find a way forward. If I might add to that, when we're so concerned about the length of skirts that our young women wear or modesty, like are they bearing their shoulders or we get so caught up in these very physical appearances of good LDS, but actually they're just, they're a distraction in my opinion. And I think that... um, I think that there are other things that we are, we need to be more concerned about rather than creating this. I used to hate teaching the young woman from the young woman's manual. I hated it, particularly when I had laurels. I just hated it. The messages were just so narrow and, and so uh, all about marriage. And I, did, I, you know, I wouldn't do it. I would teach them from the Book of Mormon. That's what I did. I'd just teach them from the Book of Mormon because I, I just couldn't bring myself to try and teach these young women week after week. For three years, they get all the time they're in young women's, they get these same messages. I just kind of figured by the time they got to Laurel's, these are young women that, you know, these are going out into the world as women. And I'm, you know, I wanted them to have the spirit. I wanted them to feel the spirit, the Holy Ghost. I wanted them to understand and have an experience with the Book of Mormon. I wanted them to get to the beginnings of a testimony. I didn't want this kind of stuff. And so that's that's how I went. They'll, they'll probably never call me again as a young woman's president. But that's the thing. We get hung up on levels of modesty. and But there, there's just other things that are so much more important. Well, maybe the other side of the argument, of course, is that we need to wake up. We progressives or more liberally minded Mormons need to just wake up and accept the fact once and for all that Mormonism is conservative. That's just what it is. It always has been, it always will be, and that cannot change unless the fundamental doctrines of the church change and all of the structures change. This is what we live with. And just like it or leave it. Never conservative. Mormonism was never conservative. You can't tell me that the story of Joseph Smith is a conservative story. There is, it's the wildest story that's ever been told. It was never built on conservatism, ever. Joseph Smith, he was, oh, he, there was nothing conservative about the man. He was going to be the president. He got his own militia together. They built a university. The women were far more involved in the church as a group of women than they have been, than they are now on some levels. And you know, it's just, it was never conservative. There was never anything conservative about Mormonism, ever. So I come back to a former argument that I made, which is we absolutely need to accept the fact that only one channel of revelation or inspiration or ideas gets to change the church, and that is the brethren. Well, I think there's, it can't be like that because the church has to evolve. And I think of a, we had a meeting with the area presidency last year talking about ward and state councils. And what they said was that in the Warden State Councils, the priesthood leader should not dominate. And most particularly, they should allow the voice of woman to be heard. And that everybody in the room should be receiving revelation simultaneously around difficult issues. 
and then they should feed that into the conversation and then revelation would emerge as an outpouring of the group, not just one person. So if the bishop or the state president want to receive all the revelation, why have all these meetings? They could stay at home, they could meditate, the rest of us could mow our lawns, do some gardening, time with the kids and so on, you know. So if that's the way, I, I don't see that. The whole thing is supposed to be built on revelation with individual leaders and in their auxiliaries and in their quorums receiving revelation and feeding it in, individuals receiving revelation in their families and their personal lives. The whole gift of the church is, is a revelatory introduction to Christ. That's what it's about. And the church is an imperfect vessel to enable that. And sometimes it's more helpful in that regard than in others. And I think it kind of varies. Organisationally speaking then, how do you think we got to this place? How do you think we got to this place where we went from a very radical, frontier, American, audacious religious organisation to something that embraces um, conservative values and nationhood and imperialism and um, this notion of infallibility of the brethren? Well, I think over time, uh, oh, let me, can I just make a wee aside here? Again, with my views around complexity, there's always two risks. The one is that we stereotype the whole church as ultra-conservative, sort of Republican and so on, and I can get a bit heated about that. And then the Republicans can stereotype the church as a kind of arm of the Constitution. You know, they almost adopt it as a, as a kind of American institution. You can feel a bit of that being here in the States. I think both of them are wrong. And I think the day-in, day-out reality of the church is probably more complex than either. But I think we are at a period where experiences of the 50s and 60s, the correlation movement, the various cultural norms about the role of women and the pattern of behavior, I think that come into the church and they've kind of been adopted as if they were the kind of revealed gospel when they're just cultural norms that are in need of change. And I also think what's happened is that the, the actual realities of the experience of many women in the church has just changed dramatically, even in the last 10 years. And the church and its, its cultural stereotypes have not changed. And I think there's a huge tension between some of those cultural norms and the actual day-in, day-out experience, particularly for women in the church, but I think for all of us. And I think that's where we're at now. And I think our options are to, to, to lovingly converse our way through that and, and come to a place of change or to regress to a kind of conservative sticking to, you know, like you say, obedience and so on. And some of the things we've been invited to stick to are cultural, they're not doctrinal. And, and I think that's really problematic. One of the things that's really apparent to me or become increasingly obvious to me as we've been in the States and, you know, we've developed quite a relationship with America over the last 10 years that Mike and Chris have been married and which has been a real eye-opener for me because, of course, I grew up in New Zealand that was anti-American and, and it's been really good for me to have that, to have that exposure in a way that I'd never had before. And one of the things that has that I've noticed is that's a bit like what Peter said, that there is this almost political tension in the church that I don't think exists in New Zealand. I think that what are seen as religious issues are actually political issues for the American community, but they're not for New Zealand. For example, Prop 8 that we've, you know, we come back to, it just was not an issue in New Zealand. And from the outside looking in, it was like, what is this all about? 
because in New Zealand we had passed the law of civil union and now we've legalised, accepted and legalised gay marriage. There's no constitutional issue for us in New Zealand around this thing. It just is. And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. It is. And, but in America, it holds a different weight. And the thing that I find quite interesting, also, depending on where you are in the church, but certainly it would appear that if you're a really good LDS, then you align yourself with a certain party. And if you don't align yourself with that party, then possibly you're seen in a different light. But in New Zealand, that doesn't happen. We're not really, if you're National or Labour, which are the two primary parties in New Zealand, or if you're with the Greens, or if you happen to like New Zealand first or whatever, it doesn't impact on our religious community or our religious experience. I think it impacts greatly on the American religious experience. Now, I'm, I'm prepared to say that I'm wrong, but that's my observation. I think that when these things come up, they are a political experience. They become a political, yeah, they become political. They're not, they're not relig- necessarily religious. Have I made sense yeah, here? Yeah, yeah, I think you have. And there is a sense yeah. here of, um, of things being politicised. It's quite subtle. And nobody means anything by it. But even in our ward here, it's a lovely local ward. But, you know, we've had several talks on the Constitution, a lot of references to freedom, Prop 8, you know, all of that sort of thing. And it just quietly politicises. And then the Kate Kelly uh, thing, again, is a, it's kind of in that conservative kind of framework. And it gives a certain impression of how things need to be. And, and uh, this closing down of conversational possibility. It's, I think it's all part of that sort of picture. Well, I would like to add a little bit more to that, if I might, Gina. Um, and I, I don't want to – I'm aware that our daughter-in-law is in the background working on the computer, and I don't want to offend her. <laughs> but there's almost this sense of spiritual imperialism here. Like – in some ways, that's what do I, how do I define that? I say that in the sense that America is the promised land. This is where Joseph, Joseph brought forth the church. The gold plates were here. So in, in some ways, I can see how this might happen. For many years, America was the superpower that was going to save the world and did in some ways, you know, how would, how would it be not to have that kind of power or force in the world when things were going globally awry around some issues, perhaps, but they've been a force to be reckoned with in the political arena, not so much lately, but certainly historically and, and in, in the context of war. And then you add the spiritual context to this where they bring the gospel and that's going to save the world as well. I can kind of see how they get themselves in this place of, look what we've done for the world. Look what we've got here. But now the issue is that actually we are a global church now. We're not an American church. The church is bigger outside of America than it is in America, even though still the biggest population of church membership is in Utah. But we're no longer this American church. You know, we're a global church. We've got diverse cultures. There's just huge diversity now 
within the church that hasn't been historically. For those of us who really want the church to become meaningful and inclusive and relevant for our time and to redeem it from these cultural trajectories which feel so heavy and problematic. For instance, how do we get the church out of America? How do we get conservative values to be part of but not uh, the whole story of Mormonism? Well, can I respond to that first? The key is always in the pattern of conversation. We've got to be able to talk together. And I think people who see the church as a kind of Republican arm and a kind of constitutional support mechanism, I think they're wrong. But also, as a more liberal member of the church, I can get a bit heated having a very strong view about those folks and that view. And so both of us can end up with feelings of anger or stuff that's that's not going to see us through. So somehow we have to come together and converse our way forward out of that. And the thing that troubles me, you know what it's like, Gina, you, you don't survive in the church in Christchurch if you don't have a, a direct spiritually informed testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel. And my concern is that the hurt and the drama that surround the sort of things that are going on at the moment detract from people's ability to receive revelation. And for my family members, I'm mature, I've been in the church for a long time. I know that the church and the gospel can withstand any conversation. There's nothing we can't confront and work through and talk through together and find ourselves somehow, I don't know, more edified and uplifted and, and more alive in Christ. I think if we can have those conversations, that can happen. But when they're closed down or when you get people who are already struggling in their life experience and then you chuck in a good dose of conservatism and all of the sort of stuff we've been seeing, it becomes a stumbling block and an offence for them. And my fear is that I could lose family members because they, they, they're not able to find their way through to Christ in the midst of all of this. So for me, the way forward is always about deepening our conversation, about greater listening, about greater openness, and about standing together in a courageous conversation around really hard questions mm. and being alive in the spirit so that we can collectively find a way forward. And that ought to be happening in ward and state councils all around the world. And by and large, it's not. And so for me, where do we start? We start locally. We, mm. you know, we think globally. We start locally. And we greatly improve the, the nature of the conversations in our ward councils. We bring difficult questions to the councils. We talk about them. We participate. And we do that across the church. I think that's the way to, to do it. That, that um, state president in, uh, where was it, Liz? Massachusetts, who got the people, to 300 folks together. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You would have read about that, Gina, the uh, stake and Relief Society president. Yeah. yeah. That's the way to do it. And, of course, that's an elementary process intervention that any organization should be doing as a matter of course. For us, it's innovative. We need to get to the point where that's not innovative. That's just business as usual. And then we'll be moving forward a bit. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I think it's about the just beginning to acknowledge difference. For all of us, what this has done for me has it's really got me really aware of how I respond to people, you know, what's been happening because the, the anger and the antagonism that's come out for some people and the hurt and and around Kate Kelly and and on both sides. And it's really caused me to reflect about being, I guess it's the Stephen R. Covey quote, seek to understand and then seek to be understood. You know, that's where, what I think is that I, I want to be able to understand someone else 
or their opinion or how come or can you help me understand that a little bit more but then also be understood and meet in that difference. I think that's the thing is that we we don't have to think the same and we don't have to agree. We can, if we can hold that difference with compassion and kindness, that's so much more important than actually coming out with the answer. And I think when Pete says that ordained woman is a simple answer to a complex situation, I don't think that ordaining woman is going to, it doesn't, just because we're ordained doesn't make us equal. It doesn't even make us the same. And I think that's the thing is to accept that none of us are the same, that we're all really different. We've all had very different life experiences, that we all have different passions and different ways of seeing things and being able to engage in that difference, but hold the tension that that difference has or carries for us to hold that tension with love and with kindness so that it doesn't erode the very thing that we believe. And, and if we can hold that tension, that's where the revelation will come. It won't just leave us in that space. It'll emerge. It'll come out of councils all around the church. Different things will start happening. People will be innovating in different areas. They can feed those ideas through and, and there'll, there'll start to be a shift. In our leadership courses, we use a, a process that comes out of MIT's, one of their departments of management, and it's about different types of listening. And they talk about moving from just downloading, which is I'm right, you're wrong, have a bit of this, through to genuine debate and sharing ideas and opening our minds to the possibility that something new could happen, through to deep empathic listening, where we really put ourselves in the shoes of the other person and really see the world from their view. And finally, through to what's called generative listening where you completely set aside your own preconceptions and you kind of wait in space together and allow something new to emerge. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of conversations we need, and we're a long way from that uh, just at the moment. And I think one of the things with faith, I read this really great quote in a book I'm reading at the moment, and the, the author was talking about faith, and they defined faith as the suspension of doubt. What was it? Willingness to suspend disbelief. Yeah. Faith is the willingness to suspend disbelief. And I really liked that because I think if we, if we have faith, we will have doubt because I don't think we can have one without the other. And faith is about the hope that, that our doubts may not be true. You know, So I think faith is that willingness to suspend doubt. And if we can have these conversations that might bring up our doubts, we, if we can move through that and have faith that the outcome is going to be okay, I think that's what I would like. Yeah, and I think that a ordained woman has been tremendously helpful. It's brought a whole lot of things to the surface, and they're not going to go away. And so it's about how we have that conversation. And I think it's, it's about how we are in our families, how we are in our wards, and speaking the truth where, where we sit, but not with any anger and really trying to transcend that but just being big enough to have the conversation and to, to be open to other people's perspectives. So that addresses the question of the culture wars, this tension between progressive and conservative Mormons. But what, ha what has been your response in the past to members of your congregation or even friends who have said, Pete, I've, or Bishop, 
I've looked at the story of Mormonism. I look at the history and it's nuts. I never knew. I feel duped. I'm cross and angry that I feel like I've been told a lie. I'm checking out. I'm done. I'm gone. Well, always it's about a direct daily empirical experience with Christ. And so for me, if I just come back a bit, when the week that we heard about Kate Kelly's disciplinary council coming up, I was extremely upset. And I remember walking down and I had a meeting with uh, Chris, you know, my daughter-in-law and two or three other wonderful women, Relief Society presidents in the state who were very, very upset. And I was walking to that meeting and I was feeling quite angry. And I thought, I, I can't, this isn't right. There's something not right about this for me. And I, I, I just had a, a prayer and I, I just felt a different spirit come over me and I don't know I just I, I felt a shift and so for me the truthfulness in the, of the gospel is is always about my daily experience my connection with the spirit with an ongoing revelatory association so the big questions of my life can be answered that I'm able to pray and hear a response all of those things so for me it's about ongoing personal revelation and it's about intense personal religious practice and so that for me that's what it's about it's not looking at the story in some disconnected way. It's about being in the story. And for me, the story is part about the restoration and, uh, and what's going on there. But, but in the main, it's about what are the fruits of that story in my own life? What happens when I minister as a priesthood holder? How do I get revelation for, my, for the challenges I've got? How do I feel the spirit? What, what's going on for me day in, day out? And every single significant step forward in my life from marrying Liz through to professional development through to creative ideas through to inspiration and workshops has come directly out of my involvement in church and out of the um, the gifts of the spirit that uh, attend that so for me it's, it's it's empirical and it's about deepening that direct association with the spirit and with Christ and the church has never failed to deliver for me in that so that's all I can say I, I had a friend who went to the Kirkland Temple and he said, Pete, as soon as I walked in there, I knew the whole thing was a hoax. And I said, really? I just got back from the Hamilton Temple where my dead father had appeared to me as we were doing his work. And I had to say my experience was quite different. I don't want to detract from his, but that's, that's all I've got is that empirical connection. And it's about strengthening the practices that, that create and sustain that. And in these difficult times, I have to do more of that, not less, to keep that going. Um, I'd like to respond to that question, Gina. Uh, I know we have had friends that have left the church, and I would have to say that that's been hard. You know, like I, it's caused me to look at my belief. It's caused me to get to my knees and, and ask questions. It's for me personally, those times when friends have left, they, they haven't been easy times for me. That I've found them very challenging. But I. I come back to I'm a believer and those friendships have been hard to navigate also after people have left because my experience of people of friends that have left is that they don't just leave they they leave angry and you know they've got a lot to say and so that's sometimes very hard to go through with them when a lot of what they're saying is what they don't like and things that you've mentioned. They feel ripped off. They feel it's a con, you know. And it's quite hard to sit alongside people when they're in that place as a believer. And I don't know that I've done that very well. It's a bit like a divorce. It is a relationship breakup and the very foundation of that relationship has been based on a mutual philosophical belief or religious belief and now that's changed 
So the relationship has changed. And I think both parties in that relationship struggle with that difference now. And I don't think it's easy. And I think that if with the friends that we've had that have left the church, we've had to accept our differences and love each other. And I just, I've had to accept that that's their experience, but it's not mine. And I respect them and I respect their experience. So if you had a family member say to you, they call you up and say, actually, I'm just done. One of your children, what would your response be? Oh, that would be hard. I think I'd be upset. Yeah, I, I would be upset. I think I would... I'd probably grieve. I think there'd be a a real grieving that would happen. But for me, I come back to my relationship with that child. And to me, my relationship with them is more important. And so, of course, we would try and talk to them and figure out and see, you know, are you sure? And maybe try and strong arm them back into the church. (laughs) But I would hope that we would be that we would love them enough to accept that decision. And that would be, that's, for me, that's more important. It's more important to me that I love my children. It's my relationship with them is more important than them being active members of the church. But having said that, I would also find it deeply upsetting. And I would, I'd cry, I'd, I'd grieve, I'd, I would feel a big loss. And my prayer would be that at some point in their life that maybe they might recall their experiences and that something would happen. But actually, you know what? My prayer would be more importantly that I would accept them no matter what. That's what my prayer would be. And I've, I mean, we've had situations with our children where they've, you know, it's been touch and go and it still is touch and go. I don't ever feel that because they're active members of the church now that that's how, where they'll be in 20 years. I, I don't know. And, you know, it, it, I don't, I don't feel I mean, I just don't know. Who knows what would happen? But for me, I would be praying that I could accept them. That would be really important to me. Yeah, I'd be devastated. I'd be upset, particularly if it was around these current issues. And I'd always invite them to put it to the test empirically. I think one of the challenges of what's going on at the moment is people can take on a kind of frame of reference that characterises the entire church as regressive and conservative and homophobic and patriarchal and so on. And there are some elements to that, but it's not the entire truth. Mm. And I, I would invite them to set aside that framework and, and just just experiment a bit with their own connection with Christ and really try and you know, enliven their testimonies at that level. In fact, I guess I'd expect that of my kids that they would have that capacity. I'd also be very upset. The bishop's decision to excommunicate Kate has made my role as a dad and an extended family more difficult, and I don't thank him for that. It's made it more difficult. Again, I don't know the circumstances. Yeah, some of the things that are going on make my job more difficult as a, as a father in a, an extended family. Like many of us, I'm trying to understand the decision to excommunicate Kate, and I wonder if maybe the rationale is that's the price you pay. You want to do this? That's what happens. Yeah, I, I don't know why they've done it. And there could be, like I say, there could be things I, I just don't know about with these situations, you know. But if, if the price that's paid of one, is one of my children, we've got a problem. My expectation is that the church needs to be a, a support in the gospel experience of my family and not the reverse. 
And so, uh, you know, I'm very, uh, I have very little tolerance for, you know, the, the sort of argument. Uh, another friend of mine in our recent weekend visit was talking to his daughter about some of this stuff and said, basically, it's a time in which the wheat is separated from the tears. And that's very convenient. But a number of the people who I know have been upset by these things or who have left the church are fine people. You know, they're, they're serving, faithful, spiritual people. They need to be supported and uplifted in their faith, not, not challenged and diminished. So, no. And if that's the price you pay and the church simply regresses to a more and more conservative element, I think we're going to have a problem as a church community. I think we're better than that. And, uh, and I think the time will show that that's the case. So you've raised a feminist son, well, feminist sons and daughters. What do you think would the future of the church look like if it was in the hands of these very progressive young people? Oh, wow. I think if Mike was a bishop, I think, yeah, I'd be really excited for the ward that he was in. I think he would show real leadership. He's, I have total confidence in, in all of my children, I think they're empathic. I think they, they're mature. They understand the atonement. They understand Christ. You know, I think it would be great. I feel quite excited about the kind of leadership that they would bring. I think it would be very different to, very different in some ways and not in others. So I think it would be very, it would be really interesting. It would certainly be stimulating yeah I think I think I feel really because they're so diverse within themselves and so open to people and have had such a wide life experience so far as far as meeting other people and meeting with difference that they would that they would be very embracing of difference but I also think that there's a real maturity about them like I know Mike can hold many conversations around different things but he really understands repentance and he looks to the leadership of the church to provide some stability amidst this tumultuous and kind of difficult time. He looks to his leaders for something. So I think that I don't, I think it could be really exciting. I, yeah, I feel really excited about the idea of some of these young people. But this is outside of news. This is outside of the States, of course. I'm talking, you know, I, I don't know about here in America I've but you know there's some really interesting people here who they just have a very different world view and I think that could be so good for the church so good so these millennials that we're raising are very different and part of their socialization means that they are more inclusive they think broadly, they handle paradox more, they're okay with contradiction. And it would seem if this is the future of the church, then the church will inevitably change, will it not? Yeah. Oh, I think so, yeah. And I, th I think that the future requires us to be more spiritually attuned and capable than perhaps we've ever been. You know, if the cultural parameters of the church aren't holding it so effectively, then we've got to replace that with a greater connection with Christ. And I would love to see our wards much more loving, although some of them do well, uh, much more open, much more conversation, people able to bring their deep issues, you know, to the table around conversation with ward councils really discussing serious issues. Pornography, for example, and pornography addiction is rampant in the church. 
having real conversations about that sort of thing, about sexuality, about people's struggles, people really bringing their life experience to the bar and, and people lovingly talking about it. I think uh, this is my personal hobby horse. I, I think we'd be deeply concerned about global warming. I think we'd be biking, we'd be gardening, we'd be trying to cut down stress, we'd be reducing our material aspiration, and we'd have these ward communities and branch communities that just were alive in Christ and with people loving and supporting and helping each other and having to have a conversation almost about anything with the diversity being honoured and but somehow also held so it doesn't tip over into chaos but where there's this conversation that's just spiritually embedded and uh, that enables the whole community to progress together. That's what I'd like to see. In many respects, what you're talking about is the kind of community experience that we grew up with as young people. And I wonder if we haven't traded community for a mass global mediated religious experience. Actually, I was reflecting the other day on a young adult trip we took over to the West Coast and we all drove cars and driving much too fast. And I remember going through Arthur's Pass, which is just a small mountain town, as you know, and there was Jim Simpson who was walking across the road completely drunk and we picked him up and popped him in the back of the car and he sobered up over the next half day and um, he joined us you know, for two or three days. And uh, I don't know, it was just a very open community. When I came back from my mission, I was the district executive secretary and my mother was the state uh, primary president and Helen Thompson was the state relief society president. And they called the district president Ashley and they were formidable. They were, in terms of representing their auxiliaries and women in general, they were very effective, challenging women. That's the church I grew up in. And so it's been small enough, I think, you know, to kind of challenge that and to put aside these kind of pseudo-GA stereotypes that sometimes pervade, you know, maybe other stakes and actually just be together. During the earthquake period, the experience in, in Avon, Avonside War was quite remarkable, wasn't it, Liz, mm -hmm. with people just being together authentically and helping and supporting. Wonderful. So, yeah, I guess it has been my experience in, in crisis generally. I'd just like to see more of that. I also think that there's such a huge cultural diversity now. Um, even in Christchurch, which is so wonderful. And very, I find it very humbling as well, working with some of these Samoan and Tongan women who work so hard and oh, they're, they're remarkable women, just remarkable women. Look, I don't know that we're actually that different in terms of group processes and human processes. We saw that with the Industrial Revolution, that people moved from very healthy uh, communities in which everybody was valued to very impersonal industrial workforce uh, communities well not communities just sort of industrial labor force automatons who just did the business um, and I wonder how we get back to that place how do we retrieve ourselves from this uh, impersonal religious experience yeah the size issue is a is a challenge I also think the busyness issue, I think most people are just quietly overwhelmed most of the time. And uh, I, I, think, I think if we're going to create these sorts of communities, it could be that we have to be somehow less involved in the many pursuits that we're all involved in, maybe creating more space as part of this as well. And that's almost a kind of personal family issue as much as it is a church structural issue. And I think a lot of us are just so busy, it's really hard to invest in the church community in the ways that you know, might, might create that sort of community. So it's part the size of the state, but I think it's part just how busy we've all become. But I don't know. What do you think, Liz? Communities 
come out of many different reasons. So relationships are formed out of something that you might do together. And I think that's the same with the gospel. We come together and we come from very, very different places, both economically, socially, ethnically, spiritually, financially. You know, what we come and sometimes we come from very different parts of the city. And the thing that brings us together is a common belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that isn't enough to bring people together as a community. And I think it's about service. I think that we, when we serve, we love who we serve, and then we serve who we love. And I think service is a very big part of developing a community. And, and I think that when we serve people, we love them and they love us in return, and then we serve because we love. And that's been my experience. And so I think that service is a very big part of of creating a community. And I think that happens through visiting teaching. It happens through home teaching. It happens when we stop in the hallway and say hello to somebody. It happens when a new family or person moves into the ward and we go up and shake their hand and say hi and ask them, you know, where they're from and how long are they here and can we have them around or... It happens when a bishop, for a bishop who serves in his ward, that's a great act of love. It's a huge sacrifice for a bishop, having been a bishop's wife, and it's a huge sacrifice for his family and those who work with him as counsellors. And that's a real act of love. It's a real act of love to serve like that. And, and I think that those are the sorts of things that create a community where we may be different, but we can still feel loved and feel part of something that we belong, where we feel like we belong and where we feel like people want us to be there. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be everybody. You know, sometimes just a few will do. Good, even good home teachers, visiting teachers, I know it's an old structural cliche really, but just a few people can be enough. And I think I'm, I'm with Liz. We want communities where we bear one another's burdens. Yeah. And where we have enough love to transcend differences. I mean, even a raving Republican and a super liberal Democrat, they're still interested in things of the spirit and their families. And many of our struggles are in common. And I think we can transcend our differences if we have the love. And if, if we set up all communities where they're designed to have conversations about lifting each other's burdens. But we have to be able to have enough safety to bring them to the table and then have conversational capacity to really, as a ward community, for example, to really try and work together to create a space where people can be helped and supported. And it is service. Some of the impediments now are structural, but I also think a lot of us have just got too busy to really commit into, the, into that type of community. Well, if you look at Christchurch, who I believe is still in a recovery stage from the, from the earthquakes, you know, just the absolute level of exhaustion and um, just how hard it has been for some people. For, well, for most people, really. And, and on the spectrum, they'll be somewhere along that spectrum of fatigue and, excuse me, and stress and anxiety around, you know, is there going to be another earthquake and how bad? And all of those things have shifted because once, once something that was once taken for granted as being always going to be there, we're always going to be safe. That's been changed forever for a lot of people. 
And so you get this huge level of fatigue that permeates through people's homes and families and lives. And it's harder for men. Men are hard to, they struggle to acknowledge that they might be finding something difficult or that they, they need help or they're kind of done in. And, and when you get that level of fatigue, it becomes so difficult to just do ordinary menial tasks. And I think, you know, Christchurch has been there quite a lot, actually. And there are some people that can manage that quite well, and there are others that can't. But if we're there together, it's okay. So that leads us to a discussion about you guys and your decision to make a break. So what are you up to? Well, we are taking a year out, and I've been the driver of that, really. I was flying back into Christchurch from some training that I'd been to in Wellington, and as I was flying into the city, I just had a very strong feeling that we needed to get out. Because for me, I I just, I was hurting, like physically hurting living in Christchurch. It was just, I just was aching. It was just so hard for me, and... You know, we'd been through such a hard time and and I had said to Pete, I think we need to get away. I think we need to get away for a while and regroup and get happy again and and start building something different for ourselves. And I'd, I'd lost, I think I'd lost happiness. I'd lost, felt like I'd lost a lot actually. I'd lost my sense of excitement. I'd, I'd just lost, I, I couldn't see anything beautiful in the world it was just really, really hard. And and so the idea of coming away has been to create space for something different. And I think it's happened at the right time. Pete's retired. We've got a we've got a pension. He got a good retirement settlement. So it made it possible for us to be able to do this. And I think it's been a real blessing for us. And there is some context there. And if you don't mind me saying, Liz, Liz was uh, survived a significant building collapse during the 2011 Christchurch earthquakes. So here are some of the reasons. Yeah, and we lost our house and have had a you know horrible fight with insurance for three years. And so just, yeah, just really tired. And Pete was really depressed and kind of borne down and we just, we were out of steam, really. Yeah, we just had to create some space, didn't mm. we? Yeah. So currently you're in Windsor, Vermont. Yep. Yes. So what comes after the USA? <laughs> well, in two weeks we fly out to Bulgaria to meet up with Tanya and um, Steve Bailey from Christchurch. And then we're in Turkey. And then we're in Nepal for two months, walking the Annapurna Trail. And then we're in India for a month. And then we go to Southeast Asia and we're there for about three or four months. And then we're in Jakarta for a couple of weeks visiting family. And then we fly into Perth. We were going to go to Bali, but I guess now that Ben's not here, we won't be doing that. So we're going to fly into Perth and we'll drive across Australia. And I want to talk a bit about Ben for a second and the reasons you're not going to Bali? Well, Ben was a very old friend of ours. He used to live in Queenstown, and he went over to Bali, and uh, he came out as a gay man and uh, married Paput. Yeah, and, in Belgium. Uh, yeah, but he's wonderful, sort of eccentric, charismatic Belgian guy. We just mm. loved him, and uh, we saw him, and um, we met both of them in New York. On their honeymoon. On their honeymoon just a little while ago, and... As we're flying out to Arizona, I was looking on the television. The plane was wired up, and Liz was on the 
just looking at her email. And as I was looking at the crash, Liz got the, um, the crash of the Malaysian airlines. Yeah, crash of the Malaysian airlines and, and the Ukraine. Liz got the uh, Facebook message saying that Ben had been on it. It was really awful. Mm. So um, and Ben's been in our family for quite a while, yeah. and he was the branch president of Mike and Chris when they lived down in Queenstown for a while. And you know, we kind of met him through Sash and Ashley, and we, you know, we had years of Ben, and yeah, it's been a real. And he's, yeah, it's been really hard, actually. It's been very, very sad and, yeah, quite sad. And from Perth? From Perth, we're going to drive across Australia, across the Nullarbor Plain and fly out of Sydney or Melbourne, probably Sydney, I think, and go home, back to our lives. Yeah, we'll see. And we don't know what really is going to happen. We're just creating enough space to see what emerges as to what we do with the next, um, next phase of our lives. And Windsor's been a great place to start because it's got us used to hot weather and humidity and we've had lots of time playing with our grandchildren and just kind of, you know, landing really. And so it's been a really wonderful place to start and we've spent some lovely time with Mike and Chris. It's just been so nice to be here with them and to just be with family for a while because when we were in Christchurch, we didn't have any other family with us and... That was very isolating at times, just so hard to be going through all this stuff and, you know, not have any family support around. It's quite difficult, you know, just that physical contact of someone just stepping in or, or just telling us we're doing well or or cooking us a meal or, you know, just anything like that. It's just been, that, that's been quite hard. So being with family again, it has, you know, being with family is good and bad, of course. It's not... I don't want to make it out to be something that it's not. But, you know, it's been great for us. Brilliant, brilliant. Look, guys, I wish you all the best on your journeys and your travels and looking forward to your return to Christchurch when you're well and healed. Oh, thanks, Gina. Thank you, Gina. Thank you for listening to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. Join us in discussing this podcast at athoughtfulfaith.org or on the same-named Facebook group. We thank Chellen Hunt for graciously donating the music for this podcast. Mm-hmm.